Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess, and today I have two, not one, but two co-hosts joining me today. First is our regular co-host, John. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And then our third co-host today is none other than my mother. Ma, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm excited to be here tonight. Awesome. So as everyone knows, it's April, April's Earth Month. So we're going to give you some fun and exciting facts about microbes and their sustainable benefits to the world. Do we have anything to talk about before we get into this? Maybe a little bit about what we're drinking tonight. Oh, excellent. Yes. So we are drinking the Pittman Pimp which is named after the fantastic microbiologist Margaret Pittman. I think she would approve. It's a delicious springtime, summertime cocktail um, that's kind of like a lemonade with a pim, which is a kind of alcohol that you find a lot in London and the UK. If you are interested in the full recipe, you can find the microbe-inspired cocktail book by Microbigals, which you can find on our website, and we will link it in the show notes as well if you are interested. The whole book i think we have about 12 different recipes in the whole thing not everything is alcoholic most things can be non-alcoholic but they all also come with some fun facts about the microbe inspired aspect of the drink as well and this pitman pim is a little bit of gin a little bit of sparkling lemonade some orange and cucumber slices and a whole lot of goodness i'm jealous i don't have a pitman pim no you're in a different location we would have made you one but we also ran out of gin so it would have been less gin for me. So I, don't know. I don't know if I would have given you one. We'll see. We could have always made her a plague water. Oh, we could have made you a plague water. That's a mm-hmm. fun one, too. All right. Well, I haven't tried that one yet. Yeah. I mean, you got to try them all like Pokemon. Anywho, let's get into it today. Uh, as we said, each of us are coming in with one way, one product or, or one method that microbes are going to help save the world and make the world a more sustainable place. Um, so if you don't know, yes, it is. It's April. April is an awesome time to go outside to remember the earth and everything that it gives to us and to understand how we're impacting this earth, uh, but then to bring it a step further and how we can help heal the earth um, from all the things that we as humans have done. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Each of us have very different aspects to this. So I hope there's something in here that everyone can latch onto and take home as well. Who would like to start. Ooh, me, I'd like to go. All right. Tell us what your sustainability product, microbe inspired product is. Well, it's a more than one product. I started with looking at mushroom leather, which I thought was a really fascinating thing. And as I was researching that, I found way more things that they are making with mushrooms. Like what? Give us the lowdown. They are making bricks and building materials. Um, They are making packaging. So you're supposed to throw it away, right? So why are we making packaging that, you know, we we buy a product and it's all surrounded with stuff to keep it safe out of plastic and things that we're going to throw into our landfills. I think we all know how um, much plastic is affecting our earth. It never goes away. It takes 
thousands of years to um, get rid of plastic. And so why are we using it that in something that we are going to throw away anyway? So they are actually growing uh, the mycelial network that mushrooms grow in. So all of the stuff that is underneath the ground, all of the fibers, they are taking that and they put it with other waste. So they take corn husks and they take uh, different you know, waste from farming. They're also doing it with even building construction materials. They're putting that all together with um, mycelial spores and it grows into whatever shape they want it to within a couple of weeks. And they are able to make these products that is can save a crazy amount of uh, CO2 emissions. And when it's no longer useful, it just goes back to the earth. It doesn't create any more waste. Um, it is really, really fascinating. So when I was reading about the mushroom leather, uh, they talked about there's uh, a couple of companies that are doing this now. And it's they've seen it on some of the, you know, the high end uh, runways. handbags. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, they're making uh, sneakers, they're making, you know, handbags, yoga mats, clothing. So it's really fascinating. And so it, if you've seen some of, some of our pieces that we have on our website, so Miss um, Michael Riza uh, does a piece on 10 sustainability things, and it talks about several items, 10 of the big problems that we have. And this technology can take care of quite a few of those things because one of the biggest things is our CO2 emissions are, are way too high, and that is uh, destroying our uh, ozone layer and our affecting our air and our, it is eventually going to affect our agriculture and our food systems. So the uh, idea that you can, you know, make something and all of the chemicals that go into making like a, a cow leather, it takes years and years and years to have a, a cow that's big enough to give up leather. It's a big chemical process that generates a lot of, of waste to make leather. So leather is a you know, something that, you know, man has been using for a long, long time, and it's served us very well. It's a, it's a great protector. It keeps warm. Uh, it lasts for a very long time. And I think a lot of people are more conscious of where, you know, that type of material might come from. And so they're like, oh, well, I'll use this faux leather. Well, faux leather is made out of plastic and pe petroleum-based materials. So you might be saving a cow at that point, but you're you're not really getting anything really any more envir environmentally friendly with um, like these faux leathers that are made out of plastic. Uh, and I think, you know, th this is what researchers are in the process of right now is figuring out how do we grow this in a, in a quick and sustainable way. We'll, we'll have to put out a piece that has some links to some of the videos that I watched today because it was just fascinating because they could basically grow a giant piece of mycelial network uh, into different shapes. They can put them into forms. They can just make them go straight and then they can, you know, press them and they came out, they can dye it. So it can be different colors um, and it's tough and it's uh, got the, the suppleness of leather um, and they can make all kinds of things out of it. And then as I started going down the rabbit hole, as you do when you are looking at stuff like this, starting seeing the, they're making bricks and they've made buildings and they've made 
like full size buildings, like yeah. people can stand in them and not just yep. Derek Zoolander's size buildings. Yeah, yeah, they've they've got uh, a Dutch group did. Uh, there's there was one in New York City. They had a, like a full size oh, cool. little building. It had a little pool next to it and stuff. So it's really fascinating. I was so excited when I was reading all this, all the information. I'm like, I had no idea mm-hmm. that any anybody was doing anything like this. And I think one of the other things I thought of was, I don't think we really think like I never really like I don't buy a lot of faux leather, but like that that's no better really environmentally. It, it's not doing the environment any favors to be making plastic leather either. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole fashion uh, sector of our lives is something that doesn't get enough attention when we talk about sustainability. But there's lots of waste streams there that are are not doing anyone good. There's also a lot of companies moving in the right direction and trying to do uh, more sustainable things with fashion. But it is a a huge aspect of our whole waste stream and um, emissions for greenhouse gases. I'm curious, did you look up any products and look at the prices of them can normal people buy them or you gotta shove over a pretty penny for them uh so like one of the companies was uh lululemon they have mushroom stuff they have a um a mushroom uh yoga mat but no yoga pants with pockets uh no i didn't see any yoga pants but yeah there's um but yeah so i think that they are you know kind of pricey at this point well lululemon's kind of pricey right so I did not look up any specific uh, prices, um, but I think there's a lot of excitement. Um, and I, I think that what they have to get down, it sounded like, was the the processing. Like, how are we going to make sure we can do that? You know, because there are considerate, you know, you you can't have mold, you know, like sometimes if you try to grow a sample of mycelial things that they can uh, you know, get mold. So there's a lot of things on YouTube. It's, and it's super interesting. Uh, there's one that I looked at that had like a, how how can I build a chair out of a mycelial network? And and they just went through a couple of different ways um, of how to do it. And a couple of times I got like a lot of mold. And the, the gist of it is they put it in with other waste, like I was saying, and then the mycelial network just goes in and it fills in the gaps. And then they it, it turns hard. And then um, so some of them were like living chairs. There was one that had actual like mushrooms, like growing out of it. And then nice. uh, it was very, uh, very interesting, very natural looking. I don't know if I'd want to sit on a bunch of mushrooms, but I mean, I would. Yeah, I've rolled around in enough dirt to not be a. <laughs> I think a, a mushroom would give a nice uh, cushioning on a seat too. Mm, you totally crush it though. They're not very sturdy mushrooms. The, but the but the thing what these are is that the the actual chairs and like the building constructing materials you can you know bake it and basically um, it's still this hard fibrous you know brick like material it's hard on the outside um, so they can basically process it different ways and come up with soft things come up with shaped things come up with hard things it's it was really fascinating I, I definitely want to do some more research. Yeah, maybe we can get some of those companies on uh, and do a whole interview with them. That'd be really cool. Yeah. And maybe they'll send us some fashion made of microbes. Wouldn't that be fun? That'd be fun. I'd be down to that. That would be cool. Anything else with the mushroom leather? Uh, No, it's just um, I definitely have to put some uh, links on the website because um, there's a lot of stuff out there that I think people would find really fascinating. Yeah, I want to watch them all. Yeah. It kind of reminds me talking about fashion. 
one of our first interviews was with uh, Tanya, and she was talking about using mushrooms to make dyes. Oh, yeah, more she did. And, and yeah. yeah, doing the clothing. That's another cool alternative to try to reduce waste in the fashion industry. And you also talked about reducing plastics. And I just a quick side note that that'd be great, especially since they're starting to find microplastics in blood samples. Yeah. Yeah, the plastic thing is a big issue. Yeah, and and I just I I never um one of the things I was watching the guy was like look it's meant to be thrown away so why why would we wrap something up in something that's gonna last for a thousand years that we intended to throw away anyway like it has no other purpose than to hold your phone in the box so it doesn't jostle around and you're gonna throw it away and that's what's filling up our landfill and. One of the things I was thinking about while I was watching, because I we, you know, try to eat a lot of vegetables and fruits and everything. They all come in plastic containers um, and that they should not be coming in plastic containers. Yeah. And it's, some, it's something like nine percent. Uh, America only recycles nine percent of the plastics anyway. So even when you're throwing them in your recycling bin, most of that is not being recycled. Yeah, we we try to reduce it, but then you go food shopping and you bring home an entire bin full of, you know, plastic. So if all of that was made out of something sustainable like mushroom, you know, packaging that can then be composted and grow more vegetables, um, it just makes so much more sense that we would be able to do that. So if they can, obviously, you would need to be able to do it very cheaply to make that work. But yeah, cheaply, quickly, high, high mass. I mean, those are all issues that come up with anything that anyone tries to produce and everyone finds ways to get over those barriers and still produce um, products. So it's just a matter of time, I think, until they figure out the mechanics and out we go with it. Yeah, it was super exciting, I thought. Yeah, I mean, a few years ago, I just remember this. There is this girl, um, she made a canoe out of mycelia and it was like a water, like she rode in her canoe across the river and she was not she didn't drown she didn't get wet or anything it was watertight so i think there's a lot of potential there for fungus and mycelia and mushrooms to really help us out in the sustainability tract just uh need to find a way to make it a little bit cheaper and then it should blow up in terms of demand mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so john do you want to give us your microbe sustainability fun facts what was sure. your product? I focused on microbial fuel cells. So I know last year- Fuel cells? Yeah, microbial fuel, fuel cells. cells. And I know last year I touched upon it quickly, but I tried to expand a little bit more this year. So if you haven't listened to last year's episode, microbial fuel cells are batteries where microbes break down products to make electrons, and these electrons produce electricity. Okay. With so, you? Now, a basic fuel cell is it's made up of an anode, which wants to donate an electron, and a cathode, which wants to accept it. And this happens under the right circumstances. And between these two is like a liquid or a barrier that conducts. What, what you're pretty much doing is you're like splitting a proton. So a proton will move across this area and then electrode goes along a wire and they meet under the cathode. They come back together and it produces energy. So like when you restart your car battery, 
You got the black thingy and the red thingy and you put them on the thingies and then the thingy happens and your car starts. Yeah, you can tell we're not engineers. So I apologize. Or mechanics. Yeah, so I apologize. I do know ahead how to restart a dead car though. But I apologize ahead of time if this oversimplification is not 100% correct. I mean, I oversimplified it. I think yeah. yours, you used <laughs> real science terms. So in microbial fuel cells, the anode houses the microbes on it. There are microbes that can produce uh, energy, including Candidia species, Saccharomyces, and E. coli, and uh, they're classified in a group of microbes called electrogens or electron-producing bacteria. Oh, that's so cute! Some like Geobacter. Oh my God, Sulfuridusins breathe out electric electrons by conducting them along what they call a nanowire, which is made up of a protein called cytochromes. I thought you were going to simplify it for us. Me, 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 me. <laughs> this is the part I understand. So I'm not going to oversimplify parts that I do understand, kind of. It's just kind of interesting to think of like they call a nanowire, but it's really just a protein. And we always think of wires as metal. That's what I was imagining. Yeah. Not a real metal wire. And then there's a, a relatively recent paper that used rainwater in Korea, and they collected it during the summer and the winter. And the rainwater contained the microbes in the air that were trapped in water drops. And they decided to test it by w either withholding or giving these microbes nutrient in the fuel cell either in ambient temperature or 30 degrees, and creating aerobic and anaerobic environments. So, so they, it needs both anaerobic and aerobic? Uh, no, they take these were different conditions they were testing everything oh, under. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And the summer rainwater did uh, best in terms of producing electricity, as well as 30 degrees Celsius being the best temperature, and the addition of nutrients. Obviously, you're giving more nutrients, they can grow better. So was the summer, it was better in the summer just because it was warmer or because they had a different microbial profile? They didn't specify from what I read why. Um, I think that's also when the monsoon season or the rain season is. Mm, yeah, we're also in Korea. I don't know their weather patterns very well. So yeah, these were the best conditions for that had the highest millivolts. But despite this... Uh, the lack of nutrients still created an output of around 553 millivolts, which can still be utilized. What what can that power? Like, how much power is that? It's not a whole lot of power, like, in terms of day-to-day -day use here. Mm -hmm. But in developing areas, especially uh, ones that have rainy season, if you can store the millivolts, I mean, that can power basic needs like water treatment or... Maybe a backup generator for the most basic needs. Mm. Is millivolts what we run like gel electrophoresis on? So that much power can run a gel yeah. for 15 minutes? Yes. Okay. All right. I'm with you. I didn't say it was perfect, but they said it has promise. I mean, yeah, all these things, they're, they're, they're promising, they're developing, and we're here sharing the, the foundation that we hope will expand into real products and change the world in tomorrow, hopefully. Yeah. And so one of the biggest issues with um, microbial fuel cells is a scale-up. This is due to cost, 
lower power densities among other things that I don't quite understand because like I said, I'm not an engineer. They even said something about like there's issues when you stack multiple microbial fuel cells batteries together. Like when you physically stack them on top of each other or when you try to condense the energy? Condense the energy, I believe, is okay. where the issue comes in. So like I briefly said before, the microbes grow on the surface of the anode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they come in, in contact with whatever's on that side so they can grow and produce electricity. So you would think that the bigger the anode, the more energy would be produced, right? Right. Yeah. But the opposite is true. Really? Yes. Smaller the anode, more energy? Yeah. So, well... More fuel? I think it's a it's diminishing returns. Like, you may be producing more energy, but in terms of, like, microbes to surface area, it, it's smaller and smaller the amount of returns you get. Mm-hmm. And it's because they say it's due to the biofilm buildup. Aw, biofilm. Yeah. I love biofilm. So- the biofilm that's produced kind of inhibits the conduction of electricity. So, just like a blanket. Yeah, I'm going to talk about two more things. Okay. One's a company, one's a paper. So, okay. I have to say, like, as of right now, I don't think this is by far the most efficient generator of energy. As far as alternative generator solutions or as of things that are out today? Yes, I think you're going to get a lot more energy out of solar. Uh, capturing solar energy. Mm-hmm. This, you know, they've been talking about this since the early 2000s. However, that being said, what if you couple making energy with treating wastewater? Mm. So there's a company called Microorganic Technologies, and they focus on wastewater treatment. Now, typically, wastewater needs to be aerated for the microbes in there to break down the waste, and that aeration takes up 50 to 80 percent of that plant's energy, you know. Really? It's that much? Yeah. Wow. But what if what if you can minimize the air that's needed to use during this process and instead use anaerobic microbes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No aeration needed there. Yeah. Aeration detrimental there. So specifically microbes that produce electricity as waste, then you can create a microbial fuel cell. So in this process, the company still uses air but that's only as the electron acceptor and the cathode. Mm-hmm. And this is but a fraction of the amount of traditional methods. I think it was as low as 9% of the amount of uh, oxygen or air that's used. Wait, wait. So they're reducing, by using the microbial fuel cell, Yep. they're reducing the amount of air by 9%? No, it only uses 9 I think it's like around 9% total of the air that would be used in traditional wastewater treatment So they're reducing it by like 90%. Yeah. Wow. But who are the anaerobes then that are doing the wastewater? They didn't specify which anaerobes they're using. Okay. But the company says by doing this, the energy used by the plant is reduced by 80 to 90%, as well as these microbes generating power. And to me, that's a win-win. You can power the plant Uh while the microbes clean up the water. Mm-hmm. And there's just one company doing yeah. this that you know, uh, that you saw, I guess. Yeah, there's a couple of companies I I looked, and you know their latest update was 2010, but this was pretty recent. So mm-hmm. they're they're still going for it. So I was like, okay, microbial fuel cells may not be the most efficient, but if you couple it with wastewater treatment, 
I think overall that's a that's a beneficial process right there. Yeah, I mean that sounds great. Cleaning water and you're making energy at the same time, and if it's efficient enough, that plant won't will be its its own power source, so you don't need to take off the grid. And last but not least is a a quick little paper from the lab at UCLA from last September. It's uh, along the same lines using wastewater, but they infuse bacteria with silver to improve that power efficiency. Silver? So they're like sparkly microbes? Uh, they like glimmer? I, I don't know. But so silver and other metals are usually antimicrobial agents, right? Right. Some of you out there may know there's a little hoopla like years ago hoopla. of underwear that you would only need to quote unquote clean once a year because it was infused with silver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, no, yeah. No, I remember no. that. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't try it. Not going to. Yeah. No, thank you. So this team used Schumannia bacteria. They're actually studied a lot because uh, of their ability to produce electricity and they thrive in many types of environments. Mm-hmm. So the team added silver nanoparticles to the anode or electrode, and that released silver ions, which the bacteria oxidized and took up. And this silver act as uh, transmission wires inside the bacteria, and the end result is it increased the electron transport efficiency output by 80%. Wow, that's good. So this generated more than double the best microbial fuel cell in terms of overall power. Mm-hmm. That's a huge uh, benefit, huge dump jump. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. They're adding silver. These microbes are using it, and they're able to shunt that ele- those electrons out a lot better. I'm not discounting microbial fuel cells. I think they still have something in our future. Yeah, I mean, if we're still seeing improvements, who knows where it can go? Right. So that's my little bit about microbial fuel cells. Maybe we should get one. <laughs> to do what? Power our microphones? Yes. <laughs> this podcast brought to you by microbes. Yeah, we'll get one of those silver laced, what is it, Shawanya bacteria, and maybe they'll produce enough electricity to charge our computers. Yeah. And then if you the podcast cuts out, then, you know, that's the length of the podcast. Yeah. Microbes said no. Yeah, we may have to end up being 10-minute podcast episodes. Yeah. Well, we can get silver-infused underwear, yeah. see how that yeah, works. That'll, that'll work, too. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. In addition to the ways microbes improve sustainability that we are discussing, our sponsor, Zymo Research, offers microbiome sample preservative that can help reduce your reliance on freezers and dry ice. DNA RNA Shield stabilizes microbiome and environmental samples at room temperature, freeing up space and reducing the carbon footprint of shipping with heavy dry ice. Learn more about DNA RNA Shield at zymoresearch.com. Zymo also proudly supports researchers working to improve sustainability in those helping endangered species. So if you have some sustainability work, feel free to reach out to Zymo on their social or to us as well to share your amazing sustainability work. We want to hear it. 
All right. So you ready for mine? Let's hear it. Yeah. So I think mine actually has a little bit of each of yours, which is really interesting, but it's also in an entirely different product um, that can be used in some of the things that we've already talked about. Oh, and I also just want to call out real quick um, that if these three sustainable products don't suit your fancy or if you're looking for more um, fungal or bacterial ways that microbes help our planet to heal. We do have another podcast that we released last year on sustainability. I think in that one, we talked about 10 different ways microbes can help in the climate crisis. And we also have an accompanying blog post. We have podcasts with people who are using our entrepreneur one with Julia Holden has a um, stuff about using microbes for ag waste. Um, So we have a lot of different ways that microbes can help in the climate crisis. So if these don't suit your fancy, I know that we have something that probably does. Uh, and, I mean, in addition, we just have stuff on how microbes make your your life better when you go outside and you smell the rain. That is a microbe or uh, looking at the lichen up on mountains. So I think this is just a big theme in our blog. It's something that we are really passionate about and we want to share all this knowledge with you. Um, so if you're interested, just go ahead and check it out. So my sustainability aspect for microbes is called biocementation. What's that? So biocementation is the process of using microbes to create cement, which we already kind of talked about with fungi creating bricks um, to create buildings and other materials that you might use in construction work. So this is a, a process that is sometimes also referred to as MICP, which which stands for microbial induced carbonate precipitation which is a lot of words. Um, I will break it down a little bit and, and tell you what I know about the process. But first, I just want to talk about the microbes because they are always the star of our show and the thing that we love oh so dearly here on the microbe moment. So there are four main groups of organisms. So this is not just a single microbe that's capable of doing it, but groups of organisms that are capable of doing MICP. The four groups include microbes that are known to do photosynthesis. So this would be your cyanobacteria and your algae. It also includes sulfate-reducing bacteria, which I'm based on the name that you just had. I think that one's probably a sulfate-reducing microbe because I don't remember. You said geobacter sulfactins or something. Yeah. It sounds like it would probably reduce sulfate, but I'm not sure on that. Don't quote me. (laughs) Uh, Bacteria that have urease enzyme are another big portion of microbes that are capable of microbial-induced carbonate precipitation. And then microbes that are involved in denitrification. And microbes that are involved in denitrification are, of course, also a a major uh, way that microbes can help us reduce greenhouse gases and increase our agriculture because of their ability to take nitrogen that can't be used by plants and convert it into a source of nitrogen for plants that they can use. Um, They're involved in all aspects of the nitrogen cycle, which nitrous oxide is also a greenhouse gas that is a part of that cycle. Um, So microbes are also uh, assisting in that cycle as well. But here we're just talking about biocementation. So Um, I did pull out some specific groups of microbes. This is always something that I'm really interested in is just hearing the genus of the microbes that can do this. This is at no 
no way a exhaustive list of microbes capable of microbial induced carbonate precipitation. Um, but some of them that can is, of course, Pseudomonas, which basically can do everything because that genus is the size of Everest and beyond. Um, Sporosarcenia, Bacillus, Mycococcus, Halomonas, Thalassospira, Lysinibacillus, and Sphingopixis. So quite some weird microbes there. A lot of those I've never heard before. I always love learning about new microbes for sure. So what is this useful for besides making bricks and houses? Does anyone have any ideas? Mm, let's see. Carbonate precipitation. Why does calcium carbonate sound so familiar? Because you took OCHEM. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, but I'm not good with organic organic chemistry. Yeah, me neither. But I mean, I think we, I think calcium carbonate was said once or twice in in our OCHEM class. <laughs> so, what else is it good for? Ma, do you have any ideas? Um. Well, I'll give you a hint. It has to do with my new job. Bioremediation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was gonna say cereal bar. What does that have to do with my new job? You have a cereal bar at your new job. Oh, yeah, but we don't use microbes to cement them into anything. Oh. Uh, so biocementation or microbial-induced carbonate precipitation can be used in a number of different bioremediation aspects. Some of that may be, one, or one big thing would be erosion. Um, so erosion of, is, of course, when soil is loose from any sort of substance and you get landslides or it gets washed away. Um, think of riverbanks with the, the sides of riverbanks falling through or soil erosion when we're talking about plants on land being really close to water surfaces again or any other place that soil erosion might happen in mountains and such. Uh, beach erosion is another big one. And this can, you can sort of think like with beach erosion, that's sort of what coral are doing. Uh, they are helping to cement uh, and so to speak, the, the sand and its area so you don't get any runoff of the beach. So this is sort of like that aspect as well. And then the other thing that's really big is um, in mining sites, this is really important. So mining sites, when they when they mine, they actually have a giant pile of their waste, and this waste can be very toxic. And if this waste is not contained or it has a landslide, then all of that toxic waste is going to be flooded into the surrounding neighborhood, which could be people's houses, it could be rainforest, it could be environmental aspects, um, really fragile ecosystems. And when this comes through, it can be just millions of tons of waste that can be distributed. So it's really, really bad. This process also includes another aspect that has a sustainable impact, and that would be carbon sequestration. And so carbon sequestration is the process of capturing and storing carbon dioxide. Um, so a lot of people will think carbon sequestration is just capturing CO2 and they forget about the capturing or the storing aspect of it. The idea is that we don't want the free CO2 in the air. We need to trap it someplace and store it in some place where it won't be released. And in this process of microbial induced carbonate precipitation, we are able to capture and store that carbon dioxide as well. 
So that, of course, is going to help with our greenhouse gas emissions as well. And the other thing which I didn't think about when I originally dove into this topic was this idea of restoring old monuments with biocementation. So actually like inoculating old monuments that might have some erosion in them, that might have some weathering in with these microbes to sort of fill in those gaps and kind of restore the integrity of the monument. So it has a historical aspect as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So like with that, would you like inoculate the microbes in some nutrient and they would convert convert that to the calcium carbonate to fill the gaps? Yeah, well, the idea is that some of the nutrients are already in, in the air, in the monument as well. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure exactly what are the nutrients, what additional nutrients they would need to put in there. But I thought that was pretty cool. So as a side note, before you get too far, I remember what calcium carbonate is now. Oh, what is it? Oh, I have a couple things. Okay. Well, you said it's uh, for landfills. Mm-hmm. That actually makes sense because calcium carbonate is used in shellfish. And a, what, a lot of beaches, what do you have? You have a lot of shells that have built up over the years. Mm-hmm. So that kind of mm-hmm. makes sense why they would use that. And the second, heartburn. Oh, Tums. 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 Yeah. That that's my contribution. Mm. I just want to say that. Good, good member berries. Are you sure you remembered and didn't just Google? I, I say mean, by my a, statement. You it's can't a prove anything. Twenty first century. What's the difference? <laughs> there is absolutely no difference. Exactly. No difference. Um, Yeah, so I wanted to lay out some advantages and disadvantages of this process, and um, then people can kind of make their assessment on what they how they feel about this MICP process. So some of the advantages are is that it easily permeates the soil. So soil uh, naturally has little pores in them, and these pores are kind of like the microbes in into the soil, and so they're allowed to go through. The opposite of permeate would be like if it's super solid, nothing can get through. So with the microbes being the size that they are, they are able to kind of infiltrate the soil architecture and get into these smaller holes. They are usually, the microbes are naturally occurring, even if you add these microbes, they're usually sourced from natural areas. Um, So it is sort of this naturally occurring process and not just dumping in man-made substances to try to do the same thing. It's bio-based, as we've said. It's eco-friendly, as again, it's not adding additional man-made substances or chemicals. It has a low carbon footprint and has that ability to lower carbon dioxide or to increase carbon sequestration as well. And it has been shown to be pretty effective in areas that they've researched it thus far. And um, it can really do a lot to immobilize that mine waste, um, which can have very huge detrimental environmental impacts if, if that barrier is broken. So there are disadvantages. I think every process and every method is going to have disadvantages. Uh, and so some of them for MICP is that it does produce ammonium, um, which is not the best byproduct to create, um, but it is produced in the process of doing this carbon sequestration and creating this calcium carbonate. It doesn't always happen uniformly. So this is one of the, it gets into the effectiveness. It can be really effective, but not necessarily effective uniformly across a wide surface. And when we're talking about trying to stabilize a riverbank or stabilize a beach, you really want it to be working uniformly across that area to have the highest impact. 
And then it's largely unknown how we would deploy this in large scale or real life settings, which I think is very true. It's a, a theme that we've talked about in all of our use cases today that we have this technology, we can make it work in small scale, but how do you actually make it work for to solve the huge problems that we have today? So it's largely unknown how we would deploy this naturally occurring microbes in large quantities and how would this impact the natural ecosystem? I mean, even though we it came from the soil naturally or came from the environment naturally, putting these large quantities could disrupt the ecosystem in some way and will change the um, the overall environment in which they live. Because if you think of it, calcium carbonate is what? A base or an acid? It's a base. It's a base. And what's a base going to do? Be basic? Yeah, but what does it do? <laughs> it's a basic. I mean, in the lab, I use it to counter acids. Right? What, 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 is that, what does basic and acid have to do with? pH balance. Exactly. And so if we're raising the pH, becoming more basic, how is that going to impact the microbial communities? Mm. Yeah, affecting the pH does affect the microbial communities. I've actually seen that in our experiments. Yeah, I mean, they, they use microbes as bioindicators for pH change because they're so fragile to these changes. And same thing with temperature. Like, just a little difference in temperature is going to change your microbial community, and they can become bioindicators for these changes. We, I, I've seen, like, a change of, like, 0.5 in pH have a drastic effect on... Uh, a bacteria. Exactly, yeah. And so if we're dumping a whole bunch of microbes into these areas uh, and it's changing the overall pH, some microbes are going to die from that. And that may have uh, large-scale effects down the, down the line in the food chain. And this is an interesting thing that we don't normally talk about in microbiology because microbiology is the study of very small things. But in some instances, these very small things may be too big for the pore sizes necessary to do the biocementation. Really? Yeah. So they might actually, bacteria might be too big uh, <laughs> in some areas like this. So we have to get nanobiology into it. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I have a couple of success cases that I'll talk about, a couple of different papers that I read to look into this a little bit more. So the first one is from Salufu and colleagues who they applied the bacteria Sporosarcina pasteuri to soil to see the biocementation effects during tidal cycles. And they found that the calcite produced by the bacteria filled 9.9% of the soil pore space and was thus effective at controlling erosion for 30 tidal cycles. So even though the percentage is small, it's only 9.9%, they did find it to be effective over this long period of time. So is the tidal cycle like a low tide, high tide? That was what my understanding, yeah. So that was kind of looking at how much of the erosion was happening in, in a tidal cycle from high tide to low tide, which is naturally there's always erosion during that time period. So they were comparing it to obviously not inoculating uh, the microbe there and seeing the level of soil that was released. Mm. So my next use case comes from Doobie and colleagues who isolated soil from a riverbank and showed there was a number of microbially induced carbonate precipitation bacteria, including 
sporocenia species that had biosegmentation potential. So it's definitely the sporocenia species is pretty, pretty good at this MICP business for sure. And then uh, I just have one more before I talk a little bit about the process. So if you're not excited yet, hopefully this final use case gets you amped up about MICP for sustainability. Oh, I love a good More one. More exciting than mushroom handbags. Oh, I know. That was pretty good. That is has a very practical element. Um, um, I just want to say quickly, you keep saying MICP, and in my head I keep saying I. Singing M I C K E Y M O U. I don't think you can sing that. That's 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 infringement for piracy and for Disney's gonna kill us. They're gonna come, <laughs> they're gonna come at us, yo. <laughs> okay, okay. Don't sue us. We love you. Are you guys old even old enough to know that? Um we run a podcast about history of microbes. We do a lot of historic things. Mm. Plus my dad used to sing that all the time when I was a little kid. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that was kind of old when I was a kid. I mean, yeah, I have I have a couple aunts that sing it all the time. All right, so I'm gonna talk specifically about the mining industry, which I think this MICP has a lot of potential here, and I'll tell you over the others because of the one fact that mining. We're talking about minings. It is this already disturbed environment, and they've created kind of this closed-off environment. Whereas when we're talking riverbanks, when we're talking beaches, uh, those are more natural environments. And so adding these copious amounts of microbes there may have very big detrimental effects. Um, But a lot of these mining areas are already kind of wasted land. They're already hazardous spaces. They don't really have any sort of naturally occurring environment anymore. So I think this has a lot of potential in these areas. And here is my very depressing yet fun fact, not really fun, but here's my um, depressing fact of the podcast. Portland cement is kind of the gold standard. Um, It would be what the industry is using now that MICP would be trying to replace or to augment in some way. So Portland cement is the standard for closing off mining and contaminated sites from disturbing the ecosystem. So it is used in a way to try to help the ecosystem. However, about 10% of the total anthropogenic CO2 is due to cement production, 10% from one substance. I was going to say, I read that in mine as well, that like the production, and it never even occurred to me that the production of cement is a major factor in, you know, where we're at with our CO2 emission levels right now. Yeah, I I had no idea that it was to that level. That is a huge number. So, I mean, the hope is that MICP can be the alternative or perhaps lower this percentage in some way by sort of taking some of the burden that we need Portland cement for. Um, kind of along the same lines that we talk about using microbes to suppress pathogens in plants so we don't have to spray as much pesticides uh, and help in that regards as well, which we've talked on the podcast a number of times as well. So the process. Uh, I think I've I have the process in a couple different ways. Um, so if one doesn't suit you, just hang tight. I'll say it another way, and maybe that will make more sense. 
Um, so microbes that can do this process have an enzyme called urease, which we talked about before. The, the major microbial group that can do this have an enzyme called urease. It breaks down urea, which uh, helps to form carbonate and ammonium, which is that waste byproduct that we no longer would like. So at this point, calcium ions can react to this and then form that calcium carbonate. This is not always calcium either. It can be uh, other um, elements as well inside the soil that would be able to bind and, and form with the carbonate. And this is the aspect of trapping that carbon. And when there is another heavy metal like zinc or like lead, then the calcium carbonate can immobilize these toxins as well, and then thus trapping it into a non-toxic metal complex. So not only are we doing that carbon sequestration with the carbonate and the calcium, but we can also attach this to these heavy metals, which can be very toxic as well. So we are trapping waste and toxic elements, helping to detoxify them. We are decreasing the overall permeability through biocementation. So it's going to stabilize the whole hazardous site. And then we are reducing the leachability of the toxic waste and mine sites through the solidification process. So those are kind of the three different ways that MICP can be really beneficial to the mining industry. And also, as we've already mentioned, has a lot of other impacts um, to our own construction systems as well. So even if you think like mining doesn't really suit you, it's not something that affects you uh, directly, it may not, um, but you can think of it very much like any building material. Um, and then it's endless what we can do there. So with every process, there are lots of things that can affect the process of MICP. We talk about them all the time on the podcast. Temperature, pH are two of the big ones that microbes can be very sensitive to. And if those things are altered just a little bit, the microbes are not going to do uh, this MICP process. So the other thing that can impact it is the microbes and enzymes around, um, much like when sometimes you might dance alone in your living room, but when someone's watching you, you no longer want to do it. Um, that happens to microbes too. They get a little, little shy sometimes. And then, of course, uh, the surrounding substrates and elements would also affect this, um, as we've said. So my last thing, and this is my last fact, I promise, um, if this is too much information, I am so sorry, but I love facts and I love data and this is my favorite thing in the whole wide world. So I'm going to say it because it's my podcast. I do what I want. This is our podcast. Okay. This is our podcast and I do what I want. That's more like it. Okay. So uh, I just want to take a moment to talk about the difference between biostimulation versus bioaugmentation. So any ideas what the differences is, are? Um, hmm, I would say biostimulation would be to like start something, start a process, while bioaugmentation redirects a process. Close. That's pretty close. Mom, do you have any ideas? Well, augmentation is to make something more. So I would assume that you are going to make something do something more than it would have done without it. Mm -hmm. What's your guess for biostimulation? That when you introduce whatever that the bio is, that it would make something happen. 
Yeah, so you guys are both pretty close. So I think of biostimulation sort of like your prebiotic and bioaugmentation sort of like your probiotic. So in biostimulation, you're modifying an existing environment to promote the native communities to do the thing you want. So here it would be microbial-induced carbonate precipitation. So it's sort of like bribing the microbes to do what you want, giving them the food that they require in order to do the job that you would like them to do. Whereas bio-augmentation is adding the actual bacteria that performs the function of interest. So this is like when you take a probiotic, you are actually in, in taking a certain bacteria that you hope is going to make your gut better in whatever way that means to you. Uh, so this might involve, um, in the process of bioaugmentation, this might involve screening for a microbe in the natural environment and then isolating that microbe and perhaps enhancing it in some way uh, through some bioengineering, some synthetic biology, if you will, to perform the function better. And then deploying that microbe into a space that needs that particular function. And of course, you can do both biostimulation and bioaugmentation to continually fuel the microbe of interest that you have. And that's it. That's all I have on biosimulation and microbial induced carbonate precipitation. Anyone have any questions? That's great. It's all really interesting. And I, as a non-scientist, uh, just kind of blows my mind that people are out there doing this work. As a scientist, it blows my mind that people are out there doing this work. It is quite amazing. And it's, uh, I, it, I've come to appreciate science more and more because I think it's just to think that there's people out there that have been trying to make mushroom chairs for, for 20 years. Um, it's just, it's amazing. And, and what, it, what will come from it and how it will change the world for the better is, is just amazing. Mm-hmm. So looking at your last thing, um, you asked us earlier, like, to weigh the pros and cons of what we thought. And I'd say right now, I, I'd see that process more beneficial for mining activities. I guess it's kind of an, a double-edged sword with environmental, like, yeah, you can try to help um, restore the environment. But if you're making it more basic, you're throwing off the environmental community, but at the same time, the environmental community may already be off as is. So yeah, that's, that's a more trickier slope. Yeah. I think when you're doing bio augmentation, it can be a very tricky slope when you're dealing with natural environments or undisturbed environments that haven't been studied uh, very thoroughly. And like, um, if you're trying to replace like what the shells, the shellfish are doing, I mean, there's calcium carbonate in there, but there's other things. And that's breaking down, but at a much slower rate. So the environment's going to get a lot slower exposure to calcium carbonate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were talking about the mine stuff, like I was thinking like, why can't they plug that up with like mycelium? Like, you know, make, a, you know, a substance out of that, fill it with, you know, corn husks and stuff and throw some mycelial network stuff down there and let it you know, go in there and water it and, and fill it up that way. It would be a nat it, it would bring it at least somewhat back to a more natural state without putting anything extra in it. So for all you scientists out there, well, that's a good, try that maybe for an idea. 
Well, these mining sites are uh, already well established, already down on the ground, and they're huge. If you never looked at a mining site, which I've only recently looked at, they are the size of New York City of waste. Well, you can't material. fill that with cement either, right? Well, the idea is that there's already stuff there. There's already rocks there, and there's already all these pressures been putting been down in all these rocks for all these years, but there are holes. And if this their holes are too big, you can have a landslide, and that's going to cause the whole thing to come undone. And so if you can send the microbes in there to pluck all those holes, tighten it up. So that would be good. Well, Microbial Nation, that is the end of our show. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you continue listening. Don't forget, we also have a website, microbials.com, where we are releasing blogs on the regular. And if you have a fun sustainability way that microbes are involved in the world, we want to hear about it. Go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and share your microbial fun facts for Earth Week. We would love to see them. Hear them, read them, look at them, research them, be a part of them. Or if you prefer to send us an email, you can reach out to us at microbigales at gmail.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com. Bye. Bye. Bye.